coming up on Philosophy Talk. What are words worth? Without words, no ideas. You don't have a word for a concept, then you have to describe the concept. You have to know what you're talking about. When ideas fail, words come in very handy. When we have the word, we can say, refer not just to the concept, but to the concept as we approve of it. Words in papers, words in books, words on TV, words for books, words of comfort, words of peace, words to make the fighting cease. How many words for snow do the Eskimos have, anyway? Our guest is linguist, author, and NPR commentator Jeff Nunberg. If we only used the, the words that have official standing in literature and dictionaries and so on, it would be pretty a poor vehicle for communicating a lot of things. What are words worth? Recorded in front of a live audience at the Marsh Theater in San Francisco. Coming up on Philosophy Talk, after the news. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. Today, we've taken Philosophy Talk just down the road. We're recording the program in front of a live audience at the Marsh Theater, San Francisco's breeding ground for new performance. No breeding while we talk, please. Uh, Our thinking originates at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus. So we're happy to meet in person some of our listeners right here in San Francisco. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, folks. Our topic today, what are words worth? Well, Ken, I think words are worth a whole lot. Right now, I'm thinking that you are a bit of an Ilunga. A what? An Ilunga. That's a word I've just imported into English from Shiluba. A bunch of linguists voted it the world's hardest word to translate. And, and now you're calling me an Ilunga? So come on, wh- wh- what are you calling me? What does that mean? Ilunga means a person who's ready to forgive any abuse the first time it happens, and they'll even overlook it the second time it happens, but they'll go ape the third time it happens. <laughs> I, I just think it's a wonderful little word. I've been using it to think ever since I heard about it. I, I wonder if Obama is basically an Ilunga, and he's going to get mad one of these days. My wife, on the other hand, is not an Ilunga. She gets mad the first abuse. <laughs> well, John, you can call me an Ilunga once, or maybe twice, but don't try it a third time. <laughs> But seriously, John, do you think you couldn't have had that thought until you had the word Ilunga? Well, I don't know about you, Ken, but I I do virtually all of my thinking in words. If if I don't have the words, I can't have the thoughts. And if you don't have thoughts, you can't act on the thoughts. You can't plan. So the words are really very important. For example, tonight I'm planning to do a little scoogling. Uh, Scoogling? (laughs) Is is, is scoogling really something you can do uh, on the public radio airwaves? I mean, sounds like a behind-closed-doors kind of activity to me. No, not at all. Scoogling is Googling the names of old schoolmates. (laughs) It's a new word, and scoogling is increasingly the cause of silences. Silences? You mean like S-I-L-E-N-C-E-S silences? Oh, no, Ken. You're so retro. (laughs) (laughs) No, silences, C-Y-L-E-N-C-E-S, long gaps in a phone conversation that occur when a person is reading an email or cyber shopping while talking on the phone or scoogling. (laughs) You know, John, you're really starting to get on my nerves with this. (laughs) Don't be such an alunga kid. But, (laughs) But let me answer your question. I think there are lots of thoughts we can't have. 
without having the right words, or at least we wouldn't be very likely to have the thoughts. Different languages and cultures have different words, and hence different conceptual schemes, and they even perceive the world differently. Yeah, yeah. I, I think there's less truth to this than you think, John. I mean, you just translated the word linguist found most difficult to translate, elunga, with an English phrase about, I don't know, what was 10 words long. I mean, before you ever had the word, you could have thought, Ken is the sort of person who is ready to forgive an, an abuse for the first time, to tolerate it the second time, but never a third time. I mean, isn't that the very same thought you now have with your fancy word elunga when you think Ken is an elunga? So what's the big deal? I mean, I could invent a word. Lexajerk to mean radio personality who shows off by using new words in a pointless way. <laughs> and now I can think, John is a Lexajerk. But it's the same thought I've been having for the last five minutes or so. Well, good points, Ken, I must admit. But I think you're missing something. When a, when a culture or a language finds a word useful, it suggests that the phenomena that the word stands for has some importance. It gets it a distinction, a grouping worth making. The word elunga encodes the insight or the possible insight that people that take three offenses to get truly angry form an interesting class. And maybe they have other interesting common characteristics too. Yeah, yeah maybe, but you know, I, I'm, I'm told that the French don't have a word, a general word for berry. They just have words for strawberries and raspberries and blueberries, but not the general word. But you know what? They still recognize the class. I mean, they even serve a nice compote made only of berries. Well, Ken, uh, I, I think in order to appreciate the depth of my point of view, I'm going to need some help. Uh, luckily, we have a thoughtful linguist to help us think about these things. Uh, one of the best in the world, but he's right from the Bay Area, and I actually stole all my examples from him. That's Jeff Nunberg. Jeff uh, is the author of the book, The Years of Talking Dangerously. He'll join us shortly, and we'll also be hearing from members of our live audience as they join this discussion, too. But first, our roving philosophical reporter, Rena Palta, talks to someone who actually earns his living inventing words. She files this report. You set up a premise, you promote the premise, and then you pay it off. Mark Hershon understands the power of words. A couple evenings a week, he runs a comedy improv team in downtown San Francisco. We started back in February, and we needed a name. So I said, well, why don't we call it the Free Range Improv School and Company, which, if you boil that down to an acronym, spells Frisco. Now, people in the Bay Area hate the word Frisco, and that's largely because of one man. Herb Kane curse his soul. In 1953, this San Francisco Chronicle columnist wrote a book called Don't Call It Frisco and started this one-man campaign to not call it Frisco. Now, Frisco dates back to the days of the Barbary Coast and the Gold Rush. There's no reason not to call it Frisco, but he started this thing that maligned anybody who called it Frisco. Nowadays, using that single word can peg you as a tourist or completely out of the loop. Or Hershon's hoping maybe it can draw a crowd to a comedy event. Does the name have power? I think it does. Hershon thinks a lot about names because he creates them for a living. In his day job, Hershon's a branding consultant. And when he worked at Lexicon Branding, he helped name the Pentium Processor and Dasani Water. He also named a small item that turned out to be one of the most famous brands in the world. The BlackBerry phone. Nowadays, we all know what a BlackBerry is. But when the company that makes the BlackBerry brought it to Hershon and his colleagues, no one had seen anything like it. It looked like a black plastic pager, and they somehow crammed this incredibly tiny keyboard with these little black rounded plastic buttons. And so we're passing these models around the table and you know, tr making observations about the device and how it works. And I, I make the observation that it looks kind of like a high-tech BlackBerry, you know, like the fruit. 
The smartphone's marketing manager was from an area of Canada where blackberries don't grow. So he was intrigued by the name. We did another eight weeks of work and generated probably 5,000 names. And after all the legal and all of the uh, focus groups, they probably had a dozen or so names that were legally available and clear to use. And at the end of all of this, the CEO, who was not part of the original briefing, but he goes, you know what, I still like that BlackBerry name the best. So it's this one observation, literally 20 minutes into the meeting. That later on, you know, today it's probably the most ubiquitous name in high technology right now. Literally, words are worth a lot. Companies spend upwards of $100,000 just for the name of a big product like the BlackBerry. Considering how mysterious a name's success is, the whole idea of a career centered around making brand names may seem a little absurd. But for every genius success story like Starbucks, Google, and Kodak, there's a, well, Ford Edsel. In terms of performance, it was actually a really good car, but it had a really stupid name. It was named for one of Henry Ford's kids. People just didn't get it. It was a total disconnect. They go, what does this mean? And they could never get over it. You know, so a a name can mean a lot. And you'll find a lot of times companies that go into bankruptcy, one of the few assets they can actually leverage is the brand names that they own. They may not be able to produce that anymore, but they can sell it to a cookie company that can make that cookie or whatever it was that went out of business. But of course, a single word can only go so far. I always say that a good name can really elevate a great product. A great name can really elevate a good product, but no name can save a bad product. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Rena Palta. Want to hear more? You can find the complete episode on iTunes Music, or for unlimited listening, become a subscriber at philosophytalk.org.